Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. We have another international guest today, and that is Stephen Bierstecker from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Now, it's another post on LinkedIn is what got this conversation and episode started. There's a link to that post in the show notes, of course. Perhaps in the post, it was the architectural rendering of a piece of cake that Stephen made for his nephew that caught my eye. And I didn't know it was for his nephew until afterwards, of course. But well done, Stephen. Eye-catching. And as of this writing, this post has 564 reactions, 59 comments, and 45 reposts. That's influence. You should take a look at it. So in this episode, meet Stephen Berstecker, architect by day and content creator by night. We've got his LinkedIn link also in the show notes. We explore a lot of topics in this episode today, including why Stephen entered the field and how he got to where he is today. And that's my absolute favorite part of every episode. There are other notions we discuss, including getting to low operational carbon, being simple, in theory. We are running highly efficient buildings on high carbon fuels. Citizens need to demand better and use energy smarter. Also, designing highly efficient buildings is critical, but so is low carbon electricity and smart users. We learned that Stephen's writing a book called The ABCs of Carbon and Architecture, probably the working title now, because he sees a big problem. Problem being, there's a huge gap between the know-it-alls and the know-it-nots in the industry. His book will be simple to read, digestible, and most importantly, brief. You can see the book outline, his tentative outline, also in the show notes. We also cover, and this is something I grabbed from some of his LinkedIn posts, 10 important questions about low-carbon design that every architect and builder needs to ask themselves or their clients. One great quote uh, saying that he made during this episode was, it's on all of us to work together. You can make a difference. Be willing to ask questions. I think that phrase right there is transportable across all of life. Okay, enough of me talking. Let's get into Eric Kaiser and myself interviewing Stephen Bierstecker on the topic of sustainability being complex and why simplicity is more important than ever. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. I am Eric Kaiser, and along with my co-host, Bill Spohn, is virtually next to me. And our special guest today, Stephen Beersticker, all the way from, it looks like Canada, I think. So welcome, Stephen. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Vancouver, Canada, actually out on the West Coast. Originally hail from Toronto, so that's where I did my education, and, and I grew up out that way, but yeah, live out here now. Very nice. I got to visit Vancouver. What is your background? What was your training, your education in? As I mentioned, I studied architecture, an undergrad in architecture in Toronto at Ryerson, now Toronto Metropolitan University. And then I did my master's directly after that. I grew up in a home that I was one of the first ones to ever even go to university. I didn't really even know what architects did. I was one of those classic go to career counseling class. And hey, you're good at math and art. Not that many people are good at math and art. Why don't you be an architect? It was like, okay, sure. So that's basically the Cole's notes of it. Right after my master's, I moved straight out to Vancouver. My now wife, then girlfriend was from out here. So I just made the move right away. Yeah, that's the long and short of it. So art and math. I was good at math and physics. And I went to a career book and looked it up and said, mechanical engineering, that's it. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> How many life decisions are made this way? 
it's funny how it was when I was in school, at least in high school, you did feel a bit like the odd man out because your group of friends wasn't the artists and it wasn't the math nerds. You were kind of in both of them and it was like, no one else is doing this. <laughs> so it, it did make sense in hindsight. But what are you doing today? Now I work at a firm, ThinkSpace Architecture. We do planning, we do architecture, we do interior design. I've been here for about three and a half years. We do primarily education work, schools, post-secondary. We do a lot of healthcare, bigger commercial type stuff. We work quite a bit with some First Nations groups as well. We don't really delve too much into the residential, a little bit in mixed use, but not much in the single family type stuff. So the reason we're talking today is because you put an illustration of a cake on LinkedIn. And I saw that illustration and I said, this is very interesting. It was a month ago and now you're on the podcast here and you got to explain to us, how does this tie into things that our audience is interested in? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny how that came about. I mean, I've been creating content on LinkedIn for a couple of years now. It snowballed into this thing that I wasn't expecting it to be, but it's been awesome. And I was on Christmas vacation actually last year when I drew that illustration. I wasn't supposed to be an illustration. I was drawing with my nephew. We were just hanging out on Christmas break and I drew this cake because we had a cake that day. <laughs> and I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, hey, this is a really nice picture of sustainable design. A lot of people, they look at it and they, they focus on like one element. It's like, and in that illustration, it's, it's the cherry on top, which I've pointed and said solar panels, which is typically the way people approach sustainability maybe as the easiest thing for people to understand is to say, put solar panels on it. But the reality of the cake is there's all of these different layers. And if you're not considering all the different layers, you can't call it a cake. You can't call it a sustainable building. So that's where the illustration came from and the ideas behind it. I think on that specific illustration, I'd labeled some other things like low carbon materials, high efficiency mechanical, some stuff like that, that we might see a piece of it, but it's so important to see the whole picture, I guess. Very nice. Yeah. We talk a lot about considering the building and all the subsystems in it as an entire system, which is very important in a lot of things today because we, as practitioners, such as myself, where I come from the field, we think of little pieces and we forget about looking at that bigger picture really and thinking in the whole of something. And it's really easy to get stuck in a hole or stuck in your own little bubble. So that's a really good illustration. I like it there a lot. I'm interested to learn a little bit more of you about you and really how you, the path you took to get here. And I was reading your story on your website and that is stevenbeersticker.com. Yeah. Believe. Yep. Cool. And we'll link to that in the show notes, but you had a very interesting story about how you got into architecture and some of the struggles you took to get into there. And that was fascinating to me because I've heard similar stories, not necessarily in architecture, but in other fields as well. And it seems to be a not necessarily unique experience, but I'd like to know more about yours. I think that story on my website about that path is really about the hurdles that it took to get into architecture. And as I mentioned, growing up in a family, I didn't have a lot of exposure to arts and culture. I didn't have a lot of exposure to different industries. My Well, my mom stayed at home with us. My dad was blue collar worker. And the first introduction I had to architecture, I'll, I'll say, I'll put that in air quotes, was our neighbor was a draftsman. So my parents thought he was an architect. 
And I went to his house and he showed me his drafting table and he still drafted by hand. And this was in the 90s. So it wasn't like there wasn't an ability to do it any other way. But anyways, I got a little bit of training from him. And when I started applying to architecture schools, what I very quickly realized was that wasn't architecture. And I had thought it was architecture. So that was a pretty rude awakening. And basically, I got rejected to every school that I applied to coming out of high school. And that was like, a, oh, maybe this isn't what's right for me, a moment. Thankfully, I ended up taking a year off. And after that amount of time, I realized this is what I want to do. So then I went at it again. And I think one of the things that at least architects talk a lot about is the industry has a lot of negative connotations to it, especially when it comes to education. And part of that bio is just about showing architects that, especially people who are young and just going into school, that we've all faced hurdles. And just because you see someone who's made it to a certain level doesn't mean that they didn't go through tough things along the way, basically. You mean you aren't an overnight success? Yeah, pretty much. It's so easy. I mean, I do the same thing. You see people who are further ahead than you and you think, oh, it must have been easy to get there. You just, I don't know, it's maybe natural. I'm not sure. So you do post twice a week now? I post six days a week, actually. Six days a week. Wow. If I can manage it. I've got three kids to give a little bit of background on me personally. They're all under five. And we had our latest in July. So I was on a really good rhythm of six days a week. And I also write a newsletter once a week if I can manage it. And yeah, so I don't sleep as much at night. <laughs> so I've been not posting as much as a result, which is totally fine. But sometimes life gets in the way of those things. Yeah. Yeah, just a little. Sometimes people that do those things as regular posting end up writing a book. Do you think that's what's going to happen here? Yeah, actually, I am working on one now already. I've released it a couple times as a pre just to see if people were interested in it. And I got quite a lot of feedback. The proposed title is actually um, the ABCs of carbon and architecture. What I felt like when I started this journey into carbon, basically, was there's a lot of really great technical knowledge, but not a lot of simple information to get you started. That's the goal with my LinkedIn, with the sketches, with the newsletter, is to simplify carbon and sustainability. It's a complex topic, but you can get into it. There's not that huge mound to overcome to get into it. And that would be the purpose of the book as well. So it's a slow grind right now with all the other commitments I have, but it's definitely ongoing. So one of the theme of this is sustainability is complex, why simplicity is more important than ever. Can you focus in on those words than ever? Why do you think there's an urgency to this? More and more, I talk to regular people about sustainability, and it's very much on people's minds right now. And I think people are really starting to see the effects of climate change more directly in their lives. And what I've found in talking to people is that a lot of people want to make a difference. They just, they don't know how. There's a lot of misconception on like what it means to actually take action. So buying an electric car, that's not an architecture example, but it's something that's applicable to all of us. It's like, is that a sustainable decision? Well, technically it's more sustainable, I suppose, than buying a brand new diesel truck, but it's less sustainable than walking or biking, way less sustainable. So I think where the simplicity now comes in is that rather than shrouding everything in complexity, we need to break things down and say, you know what, sustainability is complex, but the decision between a pickup truck and a bike isn't complex. <laughs> it's really simple. And the architecture, there's stuff like that, that too, that's 
basic, simple stuff that we need to communicate more clearly, I think. Do you have any particular simple steps for approaching this A list of like six or seven things in terms of architecture, building a new building, maybe focus on something that's in your sweet spot there, uh, schools, and then maybe also talk about homes to residences. I would say a lot of the approaches that we take in schools are very similar to houses. I mean, when you talk about the electrification movement, that is so important to understand how critical that is for moving things forward. One of the things that we do in schools is we run energy models early in on the project. And that should be something that's done, in my opinion, on every project. Like there should be an energy model no matter what. That just gives you so much intel on what making changes does for your operational carbon. Another thing that we're starting to do more and more, and I would recommend people try and do as much as they can is to run early carbon analysis. There's a tool we're just starting to use. It just got released in Canada yesterday, which was really exciting for me. And it's been in the States for quite a while. It's called EPIC, E-P-I-C. It's an early carbon analysis tool where you, you basically plug in really basic information. So area, construction type, and it'll give you an estimated 30-year embodied carbon and operational carbon. So a whole life carbon number for you. That's the first step is understanding the scope of what you're looking at. So that was interesting. You talk about energy modeling and I've looked at some different energy models and they can be very complex and difficult to run. So kind of a two-part question. One, how do you see energy modeling getting simpler to run and easier to run for more people? And two, are you doing any monitoring or testing afterwards to see how accurate that energy model was if it lived up to the predictions that were made? Yeah, those are really good questions. We've already seen some tools like Cove Tool. That one that one's been in the news quite a bit because they got a lot of big funding that is starting to do that where it's simplifying the process of modeling. Like we typically on big commercial projects, we have a consultant for that. We have a consultant for pretty much everything. Whereas in a house you could do it yourself with the right tools. I guess part of this conversation about simplicity is we all need to work on that. So that energy modeling professional needs to be able to do a great job of understanding the complexity so much that they can simplify it for people like me, who we might not understand the complexity of the model, the mechanical systems, but be able to communicate the critical information to me rather than shrouding it in complexity. And that's something that I'm also quite passionate about is it's called like engineering speak. You might have a conversation with an engineer about a system and it's so complicated that at the end of it, you had no idea where you started. So that's where the simplicity comes in. I think about all of us communicating the key pieces to each other. We haven't done any post-occupancy energy modeling. There are people that are doing that to look at how aligned those are. And I have plans to do it. We just need to find the money to actually do the research. And that's a lot of times the trouble is our contract ends when the building's built and or a year after the building's built. And after that, you know, it's the owner's thing to deal with. But I think we need to do a better job of understanding how those two translate. And that's one of the challenges I see with a lot of modeling and tasks up front like that is we have to find somebody to pay for that. And then paying for it afterwards to see whether or not it actually worked or did the job that we expected it to. And sometimes that's a hard sell. I think in the world that I've been in, in residential, it's a little bit harder. Going into commercial buildings, it's a little bit easier because the percentage of the total spend 
is easier to stomach for somebody to do an intensive model. That's interesting. So have you looked at anybody that's done the monitoring afterwards to see how close their energy models were and looked at some of that data? I don't know if I could pull anyone up off the top of my head. You guys have talked to Chris Magwood. He was on the podcast not too long ago. The ResNet, ResTalk podcast, yes. Yes, yes, that's right. And he's done work for years. When I was studying architecture 10, 15 years ago, I mean, he was teaching us about all the stuff that he was already doing back then. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but there are lots of groups that are doing that. There's also some tech that's out there right now that's going after actually publishing performance data of buildings in comparison to plan data. So that's also going on a little bit is to try and make buildings a little bit more accountable, I guess. As an architect, you're probably familiar with the book, A Pattern Language. Yeah, it's been a long time though. (laughs) Yeah, but it's also, it was published in maybe the early 80s. I'll give my quick imperfect mention of a friend of mine named Chris Dorsey, who's in the energy space and training, is now retired. When he heard it was building a house, he bought me and mailed me a copy of it. And it has something like 414 little vignettes, if you will, little short stories about building, about architecture, about space, about lighting, about connection with the environment, about community, about roads, streets, parking, everything. And and actually, my wife and I sat down and we thumbed through it to help shape our vision of what our house would become. Having said that, I think we need a new pattern language. And I'm going to ask you to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I love the sounds of that. I mean, right away, that's an interesting concept thinking about all those little connections in a simpler, more patternized way. Is that your thought there? Yeah, that's what it is. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the pattern language book, there is some like ancient descriptions of things, things that go way back in humanity and and bring them forth and say how they can be applied in today's environment. So maybe I've got a few people curious about that. There is actually a website that has the 400 some odd different positions or titles for these little chapters which we used as like a checklist. And I think we picked like 28 of them that we wanted to try to get done in the house we built. Cool. I guess you'll put that in the show notes there. That Yeah, the pattern language link. Yep. Yeah, that'd be great. That's super interesting. One thing that is reality is there are some significant patterns in making decisions about sustainable design. And as much as there's complexity in there, there's also a lot of simplicity. That's one of the things that I'm trying to do my best to communicate is Yes, there's complexity, but let's do the simple stuff first. There's the electrification. We all know that. I think now there's energy efficiency. What I've found that a lot of people aren't considering, which Chris Magwood's a huge proponent of, is body carbon. What kind of materials are we building out of? How can we just build less stuff? Those things that need to come to the forefront a little bit. I'll also add, and nowadays with the prevalence of the ease of access of media, there's, I'll say, a lot of unhelpful noise that you have to bat away and not even get into misinformation, but just noise about things that are not really even the whiff of an idea. And then everybody starts circling around like, oh, I'm going to use this. It doesn't exist. (laughs) Nobody can install it. Nobody makes it. (laughs) Ah, It drives me crazy. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that in Bill's got here in the notes, we share some notes back and forth before the show and talked about some different topics. And one of the things noted down in here is 10 simple questions to achieve a low carbon design. Is this something you came up with or is this something that you adopted from somewhere or how did that come about? 
that's just another LinkedIn post. The interesting thing about writing online is that you're forced to really distill things down to something catchy and simple, which I found crazy helpful in a bunch of different ways in life. Just this ability of first, when you get an idea, how do you record that idea? Where do you put that idea? And then how does that translate into something that people are going to be able to engage with quickly? Someone said that there's people scroll on average about 300 feet per day on their phones. I've never heard that. That's crazy. I've started doing this because now that I create content, I'd consume a lot less content because I'm too busy creating content. I don't have time. But sit on the train, you sit on a plane. I mean, even you sit in your car, you look around and everybody's on their phones and they're all desk scrolling. And the challenge is how can you get them to stop for that split second and engage with your content? So one of the things with LinkedIn, obviously, is when you say 10 simple questions, that right away is like, oh, I can digest that quickly. People stop and take a look at it. So the list itself is, I mean, when you look at it, it's pretty straightforward. It's do we need to build this building is the first question you should ask, because if you don't need to build a building, then you just save the world, basically, because building useless buildings needs to stop. And then it was like, oh, let's take another thing. And there's obviously 200 questions you should be asking through a project. But I was trying to just pinpoint some of the bigger ones. And the interesting thing is some of the comments, and this is one of the other huge benefits of social media is like, I missed stuff on the list, which is great when people actually are on there to contribute and say, I think you need to add this in the top 10. And it's like, yeah, that's a good point. I, mi- I missed that one. That's great. And I think that's part of the community aspect of it. Yeah. And the first one there that you mentioned, does this building need to be built? I think that's a very poignant question. And I have to wonder, looking at some of the buildings that are getting built today, I think there's a lot of people that maybe aren't asking that question or really diving deep enough into that question or as deep as they should be that, well, let's just say we're building in a lot of inefficiencies into what we want to be efficient buildings. And it really amazes me with some of the other questions that you have going down through that list. And obviously that would have the biggest impact, that question. I've talked to a few people about that idea and it's tough because I was talking to a contractor friend of mine about it. And I said, from an architect's point of view, the bigger the building, the more money I'm going to make and I need to work. And I was talking to my contractor friend. I was like, well, you need to work. There's not a lot of initiative for people down the chain to reduce things. There's no benefit for me personally as an architect to make a building smaller. It would benefit my client because the operational costs would be less, the construction costs would be less. But as a personal thing, the same with a contractor or anybody. So we need to ask that question for sure. And I think that's why it's not getting asked enough is because there's not enough initiative to actually ask that question. It's a very interesting take on it. It really does make you think we don't give awards out for medium-sized buildings. And I think I mentioned this on a different podcast, but we don't ever give awards out for the most comfortable building. We don't give awards out for things like that that really affect people. We give awards for the biggest buildings. And I'm pretty sure there's an award out there for the most glass on a building. Well, yeah, that's the reality, right? Each industry group's like, well, what can we celebrate about this building? And it's like the concrete industry is like, which building has the best concrete? Let's celebrate that. What group is celebrating the wood fiber board you've got in your... No, there's no group for that. And nobody's hearing about that stuff. And it's also, it just doesn't happen very much. But you nailed it there. We celebrate those big things. 
And it goes a little bit back to just our culture. We consume and we buy. And that's what our culture has been built on here in the West and much of Europe and a lot of places in this world now are built on that idea of buy more, build bigger. That's how the economy grows. You might know a friend of mine, Robert Bean. No, I don't. You don't? He's a mechanical engineer, but he's got a saying. He was on one of my really early podcasts. He's also from Canada. Promote comfort and energy efficiency will follow. He puts people first. And that, again, goes back to that pattern language concept and really think about shelter, that kind of thing is first reason for building, protect people. Yes, exactly. And you bring up a good point, which is all of this is about, in my head, just changing the conversation. We're asking the wrong questions a lot of times. Instead of asking that question, like, how big do you want the building to be? It's like, how small can we make this building? It's getting at the same thing, but it's changing that conversation so the priorities change. One thing Robert mentions that I can recall is a poorly built home structure building that's got, say, a a lot of glass and the mean radiant temperature is really warm or really cold. You tend not to use that space. You shy away from that space, yet you built it. So your cost per square foot goes up. The cost per square foot of functional space goes up because you're not functioning in that space. So again, that changes the conversation. And maybe you could spend the same amount, but get something really comfortable and actually utilize that space. Absolutely. Something else you talk about in those 10 simple questions is retrofitting existing buildings. And that to me is a really interesting subject because I see a lot of buildings that they get torn down or some of them get repurposed. Some of them just get left to sit there and rot away for years on what would otherwise be usable land when we're going out and reclaiming maybe farmland, forest land, we're, we're taking that land and turning it into new building structures. Give us some thoughts on that and how retrofit buildings can really change this conversation as well. There are two sides to the retrofit conversation. A lot of those older buildings are energy pegs. They don't have efficient systems. They're not well insulated. So from a purely energy perspective, renovating makes a ton of sense. Bringing buildings up to a higher standard performance makes sense for occupants, more comfortable, makes sense for building owners, less expensive to run, makes sense for the environment as well, because you can electrify them and you can obviously make them way more efficient. The other side of it is about embodied carbon as well, which is a lot, at least 30% of the embodied carbon in a building would come from the structural system. If you can reuse that structural system, you're saving a large amount of carbon right off the top and keeping things from the landfill. And there's a whole slew of benefits. The real tough part is more of a programming issue. It's like, how can we actually make the space useful for what we need to do? And it's tough where I live. I mean, Vancouver's not really a built up place. Generally, we don't have a long history of architecture. And we are just expanding at such an incredible rate that we don't really have the same options. But when I look at cities like, I think it was Sydney recently, there was this really interesting project that came out where they actually retrofitted a tower. And they kept 50% of this tower and built on another large portion of it. It's a beautiful building. And they really did a good job of keeping the core structure, which was concrete. As you know, probably concrete. Concrete's one of the biggest emitters. So that's the thing that we need to start doing. And When you look at early carbon 
analysis on your projects, that's where you can unlock some of that stuff. Because as soon as you get out a feasibility study on a project, you're not going back to a reno. You need to make that decision day one, day five, not day 15. (laughs) Yeah. And some of the challenges I see with retrofitting buildings that I have heard about, talked to people about is bringing them up to the current codes, such as the handicap accessibility and things like that. Obviously, you're more probably experienced with Canadian codes where we're going to be, Bill and I are probably going to be more in, in the U.S., but what goes on with doing things like that, bringing up, say, a multi-story building to current accessibility codes and standards and things like that? Are, are there ways that we could do that better to maybe promote reuse of buildings rather than just building something new? Yeah, that's a great question. And I haven't personally done any multifamily retrofits. I do have a colleague of mine who I studied with who's actually becoming one of the top Canadian architects in that realm because there's a whole segment of architecture that's going down that route, which is bringing up these buildings to a higher standard of performance. They're really interesting projects because you think about a lot of these, a lot of them are rental buildings and they're actually getting retrofitted while occupants are still in the building. So they're getting the skin basically pulled off them. They're slapping on a new coat of insulation around the whole exterior, doing it piece by piece, modular on the facade, and then retrofitting some of the mechanical systems. Part of that conversation comes down to how far do we bring those buildings up to code? What's an acceptable level of safety on some of those things? Because I'm working on a couple projects right now where it's unreasonable for the building to come fully back up to current code levels. It's just not really practical and working with the city basically to say, hey, you know, here's what it should be at. We know that it's not going to get there. How can we mitigate the risk? A lot of times that risk is, as you said, accessibility, fire, but there are things that you can do to try and help mitigate that risk and retain the structure still. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a whole different process of analysis at the beginning and really digging in and figuring out what's going to work best for the customer's needs, for the end user's needs things like that, what's cost benefit analysis and everything else. So absolutely. There's a lot of thought process that needs to go into this. And I think that's one of the things that we often miss in buildings from my perspective, anyhow, is thinking about not only what does this have to be when it's done, but how do we get from point A to point B? Right. How do you think of you're an individual with children? So you must think about the future. (laughs) I do. Yeah. What's your view personally, and then say maybe the broader public's view and maybe architecture's view on the permanence of buildings? Like building right now is important. Building correctly now is important. Can you expand on that? One of the things, and I should have maybe put it in that top 10 post, is about, I had a conversation with an architect and and he claimed to be interested in sustainability, but when I actually started pressing him, it was actually much more about the aesthetic of the building at the end of the day, but he had a great argument. And the argument was a beautiful building will last double an ugly building. So why are we, I'm focused on designing beautiful buildings so that they last longer. And I was like, Hey, as much as you're just trying to cover over you designing basically glass buildings that look nice, you do have a point there. And, and I think as architects, I guess, That's an exciting idea because we all, well, most of us at least want to design beautiful buildings. And the reality is you do see some of these buildings, these buildings that have lasted 
generations, potentially cathedrals, these structures that have lasted beyond just that single life cycle, I guess. And they're buildings that are built right. They're buildings that were invested in to a higher degree, obviously not up to current codes, but they had a longer view. And I think that's maybe one thing that we need to start doing a better job of is saying not only your point there, Bill, about building right, but also are we building for 30 years? Are we building for 150 years? If this building was still here in 150 years, how would you have designed it differently than if it was just that kind of single cycle? Expandability, one of the things that we're talking more about is the deconstructability idea. So why are we putting in things that we can't take out? Should we be designing systems that can actually be easily removed so that they can be replaced at a later date? Less glues, more screws, those discussions so that we do think further down the road. That's a very interesting thought process, especially from a mechanical standpoint, being from the HVAC realm. Those systems often have to be replaced, retrofitted, upgraded at some point during the life of a building, maybe multiple times during the life of a building, whether it's residential or commercial. And a lot of buildings and a lot of the subsystems of a building are not designed around ease of replacement. And I see it a lot in residential and in commercial as well. Maybe they bury the equipment in the middle of a building where you got to tear half the building apart or you have to completely disassemble the mechanical systems in order to get the new equipment in. I love that thought process because that costs more, affects the whole building and affects the life cycle of the building as well. Right. And I think you have a, another good point in there, which is, I think as an architect, one of the things I struggle with is I don't know the intricacies of what it takes to replace a mechanical system. I can't know that information. And I really rely on the consultants to raise a flag and say, hey, if you wanted to replace this in 10 years, this would be a real hassle. Oh, I didn't know that, right? Because architects are so focused on a thousand different things that are all trying to come together. And not that we could solve every problem, but a lot of times we're not even aware of some of those problems. And I think each industry... You mentioned this idea of siloing earlier, each industry trying to say, hey, I actually noticed this one area of our industry that we can improve from a carbon perspective, from a cost perspective, all of those things. And I think traditionally, we've done that when it comes to cost and schedule. But carbon and sustainability hasn't really been as much elevated to the forefront. And that's how we're going to, I think, work together to solve this problem. Is that something you ask your consultants during the design process as you say, hey, how hard is this going to be to maintain this equipment that we're putting in here? How hard is it going to be to keep it operating properly while the building is working and then replace it when it does break down? Because let's face it, mechanical systems are going to fail eventually. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Yeah. Uh, no, honestly, I don't really ask that question. As I said, there's just so many other things to worry about. I mean, there's a certain level of replaceability, like access hatches and the standard maintenance requirements. But I think moving forward, those will be more of the conversations. And I'm doing my best to try and understand those more and more so that I can ask the right questions. But on the flip side, I really rely on my consultants to be proactive about that stuff. Because, right, there's the mechanical engineer, the civil engineer, the landscape. If the landscape architect came to me and said, hey, I can store double the carbon in the planting beds if I use this plant or whatever, 
Or if you ran the parking a little bit, the civil engineer could actually manage some of the water on the site instead of having to run into the storm system. I can't think of all that stuff. We rely, we're a team. And that's the stuff that I try and communicate is we're a team. Here's the goal. We need all of your ideas, basically, because they're the experts in those fields. And what I can do is try and encourage people to do their part on projects, I guess, is the point there. Yeah. Yeah. I can say that having worked in some buildings, man, maintenance on that stuff while it's in the building is a pain. (laughs) And then, of course, we get add-ons later where you get people coming through running wires or phone lines or internet lines right in front of access doors. And there's all kinds of stuff that happens down the road that we couldn't even think of when that building was originally designed. So technology changes too. That's the real, how do you expect to be able to replace mechanical equipment if in 50 years, it's, we're going to have hydrogen something or whatever. So there is a limiting factor to how much you can really plan for. I've got one final question for you. After you answer that, I'd like you to wrap up with a closing thought for our listeners. The final question is, who likes cake more, you or your nephew? My nephew, for sure. (laughs) Okay. All right. After we get that out, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners? First of all, I I just want to thank you guys for inviting me on the podcast. I mean, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, and I think these are the conversations we need to keep having. I think my final takeaway is that it's on all of us. We need to each be doing our part in our industries and working together to try and do a better job here. I talk to a lot of people and they oftentimes feel like they can't really make a difference. And I've found that that's just not true. It's just people aren't willing to really change and they're not willing to ask the right questions. So I think that's what I would encourage people to do is just individually say, what can I do personally in my life and in my work to try and make things a little bit better? And in that way, I think we'll work together to solve this problem. Thank you. Really appreciate you coming on on a Friday afternoon. What's the weather like there in Vancouver? It's 21 and sunny right now, which isn't what we're supposed to have in October, but I can't complain from a physical point of view. Good. Go out and enjoy the sun and enjoy the weekend. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where you know it's our goal to help create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. We diverged a little from our focus to talk about architectural and architectural design, but that really still has important because we're talking about buildings and homes in every case with the Building HVAC Science Podcast. So this was a nice little side road, I think, to take a journey down. I also host the ResTalk podcast, and you can learn more about the rapidly expanding world of home energy ratings and peripheral topics. That's R-E-S-T-A-L-K podcast. The Building HVAC Science podcast is a production of TrueTech Tools Limited. In full disclosure, I'm an owner of TrueTech. I always wonder, is there ever partial disclosure? I guess you'd never know. You might think it's full. Anyway, let's give a shout out to some other great trade-related resources and influencers those including HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, AC Service Tech, MeasureQuick, HVA Chicks, The Misfits of HVAC, The HVAC Grapevine, HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, and Stephen Reardon. Again, thank you for listening to this episode. We look forward to your feedback. You can reach out to us at marketing at truetechtools.com. If you're in the market for any tools or test instruments, 
mentioned in the podcast or just in general, take a look at truetechtools.com, my company. See what we carry, T-R-U-T-E-C-H-T-O-O-L-S.com, and you can use the offer code HVACBS for a nice discount. Thanks again for listening. Take care, and we welcome to have you back again listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Mm-hmm.